This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You and me against the world Sometimes it feels like you and me against the world We're going we're gonna to slow it down <laughs> a little bit We're going to take everybody. it down a notch. Bill Ferries <laughs> is here in the studio. He's made his way in. Never had an intro uh, like that. Exactly. The lights he are is, a little bit lower. Exactly. <laughs> Taking it down a notch. Uh, Bill Ferries is our national security team leader. Normally we're talking to him in our Washington Bureau, but he's here in New York. He and I were just reminiscing about UN General Assembly's past and just the sheer number of people who descend on Manhattan, really Midtown Manhattan, uh, every year around this time. Bill, obviously this is a big day from the U.S. perspective. We had President Trump speaking to the assembled world leaders. So break it down for us. What did you hear? What are people saying in reaction to that? Well, for uh, first of all, for a uh, speech by President Trump, it was really kind of a, a steady, uh, kind of low-key presentation. I'm much more used to seeing his rallies and things like that, comments in Washington. Different from last year? Very different. Uh, lo- much less bombast. Last year, you remember, was when he talked about Kim Jong-un as, mm-hmm. the, uh, as rocket man on a suicide mission. And, and this year, that North Korea was a 180-degree change. He's praising the relationship he's built with Kim. He's talking about uh, the next summit that's coming down the pike probably later this year. Uh, and he really took much more of a focus on Iran. And everything the administration is doing here in New York this week is kind of geared towards uh, trying to get more support for Trump's decision to pull out of the Iran deal, put more pressure, more sanctions on, on uh, President Rouhani and his government. And what's been the response so far from Iran? (laughs) I mean, I I know there's been a little bit of rhetoric uh, going back and forth. I was just looking on my Twitter feed, and it looks like uh, Rouhani has come back and essentially said, you know, it's ironic that they talk so tough, you know, publicly, but they're trying to engage behind the scenes. Who's sort of winning in this rhetorical tug of war here? Well, one thing the president said in his speech was, you know, my, my he says his decision to leave the Iran deal had a lot of support in the Middle East. That's probably true. Um, It had very little support anywhere else, even among U.S. allies in Europe, uh, other members of the Security Council, United Nations itself. It was a very unpopular move. Because if I remember correctly, President Macron tried to talk him out of pulling out of that deal, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and that's still a sore point. The European foreign ministers met last night here in a hotel in Washington, uh, in New York, trying to find a way to keep the Iran nuclear deal alive. Uh, The reality is, though, that Trump is having a big impact. Uh, his threat of his threat of sanctions starting in November, hitting the Iranian oil exports, has uh, has been a hit for the country. It's their their exports are down, uh, unemployment, inflation, those kind of key economic indicators are worsening. So the U.S. This is a case where the U.S. actually does have a lot of leverage, and it's because. President Trump has essentially threatened to sanction allies. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's a step that was always too far for, I think, previous administrations. Mm-hmm. Right. It's interesting. We talked about this. This is just to tease another story that's coming up in the magazine, in, in Business Week magazine, uh, talks about the imposition of um, imposing sanctions and whether or not they get carried out because the Trump administration has been busy putting them out there, but uh, maybe a little bit lax in uh, actually carrying them out. 
Well, say, yeah, sanctions, I think, is this tool that the administration seems to apply to almost every foreign policy crisis now. Yeah. When you look at North Korea, it's, it's an issue of getting sanctions. When you look at uh, the U.S. feud with Turkey over this detained American pastor, how did the president respond? He doubled tariffs. Um, so tariffs and sanctions are like these interchangeable tools for this administration. It's not clear. People who look at this issue academically will tell you sanctions only work in specific cases uh, when you have a lot of uh, unanimity surrounding them. In the case of Iran, um, we're trying to figure out where that's headed. If you're a CEO of a company uh, in Europe and you're thinking, Iran's a promising market, they have a, a young population, uh, they have some you know, uh, disposable income to spend, but going there risks putting your access to the U.S. dollar, uh, the U.S. market um, you know, at stake. It's a pretty easy decision. You can You're say, you know choice. what, I'm going yeah. to try to wait this out. We've talked to a number of analysts who think that's also the Iranian position. They want to see if Trump is a one-term president and they can survive. You know, can they scrape by for the next two years and a few months uh, and get to 2021 and maybe a, a, a U.S. president who isn't quite so hostile? And so as you look out through the rest of the week, who are the other leaders that we're especially eager to hear from who may move the needle one way or the other on a global basis? Well, you know, I think uh, this is one of the few years where we're really interested in what North Korea has to say. Yeah. How do they judge uh, the relationship? Because what we've seen is uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un have a very good relationship. Uh, at the next level down, it's been a little bit more hostile. Every time Secretary Pompeo goes to Pyongyang now or uh, somewhere in the region, he seems to get criticism from North Korea. So is that a dynamic that's going to play out? I think, their, um, I think their foreign minister speaks on Saturday. Uh, you know, I think we're, we're very curious to see how, uh, is there any kind of breakthrough with Turkey this week at well, all? Well, it's interesting too, I was reading some of the Bloomberg News coverage, right? I think um, who was speaking when flipped or something so that President Trump ended up running into Erdogan. Right. Uh, President Trump arrived a little bit late to the U.N. this morning, so he was supposed to go second. Uh, he went third um, after the Ecuador president. So he and President Erdogan ended up back to back and passed each other and essentially, you know, the green room backstage and shook hands. We were told it was brief and cordial. Um, but, you know, there and, and there was no real chance um, to fix some of these really intense uh, diplomatic spats that the two countries have at this point. Because you talk about heated rhetoric. I mean, yeah. Almost nowhere have we seen it as hot as it has been over the last couple months around the pastor uh, that you mentioned early and some pretty heavy sanctions and some pretty tough talk on both sides. On both sides. And remember, this is a, a key NATO ally. Actually, Turkey has the second biggest military in NATO after the United States. Uh, we use their base at Incirlik to launch attacks on Islamic State uh, terrorists in Syria. We used it prior to that um, to launch attacks in Iraq. They're, they're a critical ally. And uh, it's very unusual to see this kind of a dispute. Turkey is talking about buying Russian missile defense systems that uh, you know, could eventually target U.S. F-35s. It's a, it's a very complex situation right now. Very quickly, 20 seconds. President Trump's second year at the U.N. versus first year. How are, how's the world looking at him? He was a newcomer last year. No one knew what to expect. And he gave a very, a really tough speech last year. It was, it was more subtle. It was more of a, a, more of a traditional U.N. speech this time around. Thank you. Thank you. So great to have you, you in studio and get uh, your thoughts on that and having seen it firsthand. Bill Ferries, he's national security team leader at Bloomberg News based in Washington. All right, Slime the Family Stone, bringing us into our next segment. And that's with Dan North. He's the chief economist with Euler 
Hermes. He's located down in Baltimore where he joins us on the phone. Dan, the Fed meeting tomorrow, there's not a lot of drama about what the Fed's going to do, but there is a little bit of question about what Jay Powell is going to say. 24 hours from now, what should we be expecting? Uh, well, first, thanks for uh, having me. And uh, you're spot on. Tomorrow is a pretty well done deal. We're going to see a 25 basis point hike. And I expect to see uh, some firm language, both in the statements and in the press conference, and probably an upgrade to the forecasts as well. The economy is performing uh, very well, relatively speaking. And I think that they're going to come out and say, you know, we see the unemployment, we see the inflation coming a little bit, and we're on a path for December with uh, very little question, I think. And we're going to be on a path for two, perhaps three hikes uh, in 2019 as well. And so what is the data? What are the data that they're looking at that give them that sort of confidence in your estimation? Well, let's see. You know, it's it's uh, for the Fed, it's that balance between unemployment and inflation. And mm-hmm. so, you know, the numbers are, are pretty strong uh, supporting the case. The unemployment rate's 3.9%. Last month, it was 3.8% in May. That's tied for a record uh, 18 years ago. And before that, it was 45 years ago that it was at 3.8%. So unemployment is uh, still very, very low. Wage inflation is starting to tick up. We saw it ticked up to 2.9% year over year, which is the highest in nine years. That core PCE reached the Fed's target at 2% for the first time in six years. Um, CPE uh, uh, is also at 2.3%, the highest in six years. So, And you're starting to see producer prices, oil, gasoline, steel, freight, everything's on the rise. So there's certainly inflationary pressures as well. What would surprise you from the Fed meeting tomorrow? Well, what would surprise me if they, uh, you know, if they came out a little bit more dovish? Mm. Um, I think Jay Powell seems to be, you know, uh, for lack of a better description, no-nonsense kind of a guy. Um, the shorter statements I like, uh, he's brief and to the point and, and very clear. And I, I think that we're just going to see um, descriptions of a stronger economy tomorrow. I'd be very surprised if something like the dot plot were to show that uh, the members of the FOMC were backing up, as it were. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, it's, I, I really think we're going to support that perhaps even three case uh, hikes in 2019. Dan, you also thought that the recent appointment of uh, Richard Clarida, uh, formerly of PIMCO, as a welcome development. What, what does he bring to this Fed? Well, again, he's sort of the, uh, got the um, feature that, that uh, Jerome Powell has, which he's had actual experience in the financial markets as well as being an economist. And that's a really good balance, I think, that has been missing from the previous Feds for a while. So uh, I think that's a real positive. And he seems to be, from from what I read, a very clear thinker and a clear speaker, which uh, goes a long way in communications with the Fed, which, of course, is, is very important. And keep in mind, we still have two more uh, missing governors. Um, so we've got to, to fill those in. They're nominees, of course, but... Um, we're, you know, we're we're still short on the board of governors. Yeah, and so what, that, talk to talk to us about that because what does that mean in terms of policy getting done? The sorts of discussions that may happen or not happen given those vacancies. Yeah, um, 
I think, you know, if you're used to having a board of a certain size and suddenly you're cut down fairly dramatically, then, you know, it's a question of what research is going to get done, uh, what discussions will happen around policy. I mean, we've had a strong voice in Leo Brainerd, um, but, you know, perhaps we need some balance uh, from some other opinions. Typically, you know, you get more opinions, more discussion, you'll end up in the long run with better, uh, better decisions. Hey, you know, when you look, though, um, Dan, uh, through some of the economic statistics that are out there, you know, I heard what you're talking about, the labor market. And I still wonder, though, God, there's so many people around the country that maybe are not in a full-time position, a lot of people still out of work. And I do wonder, you know, are we being a little silly and, and maybe not smarter and, and, and maybe that these statistics aren't really truly telling us everything? Well, this is a good point. Um, I, I think it depends on where you are and, and what industry you're in. For instance, if you're in manufacturing, I go talk to a lot of manufacturing groups. They're just pounding the table saying this is demand has been the best it's been uh, in over a decade. I really could expand so much faster if I could find somebody to work for me. Um, so shortages of labor um, are, are tremendous in uh, manufacturing construction, and on the coasts. Now, other types of activity in, uh, in the flyover states are not quite as strong. But um, so, so you raise a good point. It's a little bit bifurcated. But if you look at the industries, manufacturing and so forth, they're desperate, desperate for labor. And they're at the point now where they will actually start hiring people with criminal records, which they never would have done before. All right, Dan, great to get some time with you. Nice to talk with you. Dan North, once again, joining us here on Bloomberg Business Week, chief economist at uh, Euler Hermes on the phone from Baltimore. So if a picture is worth a thousand words, I'm curious what picture the founders of Instagram might pose to describe their time at Facebook, which is, as we know, Jason Kelly, it is over. Founders of Instagram leaving Facebook after some growing tensions with CEO Mark Zuckerberg. It's a pretty big deal. Uh, let's get into this with Bob O'Donnell. He's president and chief analyst at Technalysis Research. He knows a lot about uh, the social media space. He's on the phone from Foster City, California. She also knows a lot about the social media space and Facebook and Instagram. She's our technology reporter at Bloomberg News, Sarah Fryer, who earlier wrote a smart in-depth story for Bloomberg Business Week magazine on how Instagram looked like Facebook's best hope. How do you see this development? You understand these companies, uh, Sarah. You've seen how they were integrated or not. Um, what does this mean? Instagram has operated almost as a separate company within Facebook. It has its own brand. It has its own culture. Of course, it has its own founder CEOs, but not anymore. Uh, it is going to be something more like a product division within Facebook from now on, which is you know maybe disappointing to to some of the people who work there. Um, certainly, the founders spent a lot of of time over the last few years since since joining Facebook in 2012, kind of fighting for Instagram's identity and product vision. And now there's not going to be anyone who has a separate vision for the product besides Zuckerberg. So Zuckerberg is going to be able to uh, kind of get his, get his way and integrate Instagram a lot more into Facebook and uh, sort of turn it into this cross-promotional part of what he calls his family of apps. So, Bob, come on in here. How much do you worry, having seen 
founders come and founders go. In this particular case, how much do you worry about Zuckerberg kind of killing the goose that lays the golden egg for him? Well, you know, it's very interesting. And, and Sarah made a very interesting point in her article, which is, as you pointed out, an excellent piece. Um, the fact that Instagram has been a very separate animal, uh, both within the company and is perceived as being different outside of the company as well. And now with Zuckerberg taking more control, I think there is potentially concern of the two being started to be seen more together. And, of course, with all the negative publicity being associated with Facebook, some of that potentially starts to rub off on Instagram. And, you know, it's not so much that the founders are gone. They, did, they were there for six years, so clearly mm -hmm. they had a vision going. But the question is, does Zuckerberg change the product in a way that is somewhat antithetical to the way it has been run up till now? Clearly, that must have what drove the two of them out is that he is planning to do that. And so then that becomes a question of how does that impact the user base, which ultimately, of course, would impact profitability. Like, I love in your story, Sarah, too, that, you know, you, you bring up the point of these two founders were able to kind of push back on Facebook things and certain product initiatives that they felt were against their vision. You do wonder if there's somebody new now put in charge of Instagram, if they're going to have that same allegiance to the brand that the founders did. It's hard to imagine that anybody would. Well, no, I don't think that they would. And depending on, on how you um, how you consider Instagram's future, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, it, yeah, you true. know, it could it could threaten what we know and love in the Instagram product, or it could contribute to Facebook in a much more dramatic way revenue-wise as they start to predict a slowdown in their growth. Um, so a lot of the resistance from Instagram was about some of these these uh, data sharing and growth initiatives with Facebook. And, you know, this is an opportunity for Zuckerberg to milk it. So, Bob, we've made a big deal of this, obviously, here on Bloomberg. It's one of the most read stories uh, of the day. But how much of this may be overblown here? How much of this is founders come and go, as I was saying earlier? This is the circle of life in Silicon Valley. These guys want to go on to create something else. We've seen a number of acquired company uh, executives leave Facebook uh, over the past couple of years. So maybe not such a big deal here. Look, it's, that's a very fair point, and certainly in the in the near term, we're not going to see anything. You know, the, the, I think the question that I certainly have, and I think that, that Sir had raised in the piece, is you know, long term, how does this influence the overall Instagram product? And then, and again, subsequently, what does that mean to how end users perceive it? Right now, people love it; they, it's been growing like crazy. Facebook is counting on it to drive a lot of revenue for them uh, in the future. Um, and so, you know, obviously, they're going to get, in terms of a leadership change, they'll get past that. It's just that sort of philosophical question of, of where does the product go and um, can it be turned into something that actually helps make Facebook more interesting and fun again? Or does it lose some of its value uh, over time by being associated with some of the bad things that Facebook has? Those are the much longer term issues that I think uh, I'm certainly thinking about. But in the near term, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not going to affect anything. So, Sarah, they made hundreds of millions of dollars, $715 million by one uh, account. How, uh, what do they do next? That's got to be a fun parlor game in Silicon Valley these days. These guys are very young guys. They've got to have at least another trick up their sleeve. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they said as much in their uh, departure blog post. They said that now they're going to take some time 
to think what is it that the world needs that that aligns with what we hope to create and make it. Um, so it seems like there's still a team. They're still working together. And, mm. and you know, from my sources within the company, the founders are being a little bit coy about what that next step might be. So that may mean they already have an idea. Um, you know, I, I think for now they're probably going to, to lay low for a bit. Um, and I, I, I think that any VC in Silicon Valley would be happy to fund whatever their idea is next. All right, going to leave it on that note. Uh, interesting, and uh, there'll be more stories to write about this uh, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, and what these uh, two co-founders of Instagram ultimately do. Sarah Fryer, thank you. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco, and our thanks always to Bob O'Donnell. He's president and chief analyst at Technalysis Research. A lot of showdowns happening all around the country, Carol, as we get closer and closer, a little over 40 yeah. days, I believe, toward the midterm elections, arguably the most anticipated midterm elections we've had, certainly in the past couple of decades. To get more, to go a level deeper, we're going to turn to one of our faves, Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the phone from Washington. Josh, you take us to Maine. Uh, for this story in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Tell us what's happening in this house race up there. Well, what's interesting about this race, and the reason I went to Maine in August to do reporting besides the lovely weather and the lobster, is that... (laughs) Yeah, tough assignment, by the way. Really tough assignment, man. They had to twist my arm, right? (laughs) Uh, Maine's 2nd District is actually one of the largest rural districts in the country. It it basically encompasses all of Maine except for the the, the Portland geographic area. And if you look at Democratic gains or the gains that we've seen in poll numbers in, in, in districts across the country, they tend to be in urban areas. They tend to be in suburbs. Uh, sometimes in exurbs, but the one place Democrats have really struggled to make gains during the Trump era has been in rural America, which has been trending Republican for a long time uh, and went very heavily for Trump in 2016. So what's so interesting about Maine's second district race is that it pits an incumbent Republican, Bruce Poliquin, uh, against a young Democrat and former Marine named Jared Golden and what a lot of strategists expect to be one of the closest House races this cycle. And if it turns out that Democrats can win in rural areas like this, and it's not clear yet, but if they can, then we're going to really see a big wave in November. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I am curious, you know, there you are on the ground eating lots of lobster, but I am curious what you're hearing uh, from uh, citizens there about how they have perceived, what, the first uh, couple of years of a Trump administration. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it is a very polarized district. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people in this district are, you know, blue collar, you know, inland, rural, working class people. Uh, The district is heavily white. There aren't a lot of minority voters which tend to vote Democratic, and yet it has a long Democratic uh, and and union lineage. So there's certainly openness to voting Democratic. Um, The other interesting factor here is that this this district has been uh, is being hit hard by some of the retaliatory tariffs from Trump's trade war. So uh, you have Chinese seafood uh, tariffs, tariffs on U.S. seafood, which has hurt the lobster industry. Uh, And so, as best I could determine, you know. How you view Trump depends a lot on who you voted for in 2016. Uh, You know, people who voted Democratic tend to see Trump as the source of uh, a lot of the district's problems. 
Um, people who voted for Trump will blame the Chinese, will blame energy prices, will blame what have you. But there's been an unmistakable trend, I think, in a democratic direction, um, less because of Trump and more because of the profile of the Democratic candidate, Jaron Goldman, who, like many Democrats running in red districts, is uh, a military veteran. Mm. He is somebody who is uh, not particularly socially liberal. He's got lots of tattoos. You know, he doesn't look like the latte drinking, you know, <laughs> urban liberals of, of conservative caricature. And he's, he was, he's born and raised in, in a small town in the district. So, um, you know, I think I, the lesson I took away is that Democrats do well when they choose candidates who represent the district. And this is something the yeah. Democrats have done a fairly poor job of in past elections. I wanted to say, bam, Josh, because I feel like, right, so much of politics, there's a lot of emotion, uh, your emotional uh, emotional re reaction to candidates, right? I mean, that can be very <clears throat> significant in ultimately who you vote for. You know, it, it can be. And, and the other factor here that, that is more true in rural America than elsewhere is that these are areas of the country that voted for Trump in large part because they've been left behind in the economic right. recovery. Right. Jobs are leaving. Young people are leaving to, to, to bigger cities to kind of get jobs. And one of the attractions of Trump, speaking to voters in these districts, was he had promised to bring it all back. Well, that hasn't happened. It hasn't happened in Maine's 2nd District. And so I think this midterm election is going to be an early glimpse of whether people who bought into the Trump message and the Trump promise of making America great again are going to stick with Republicans in elections or whether what we'll see instead uh, is the beginning of an exodus of mm. these voters from Republicans back to Democrats. So, Josh, we can't have you on the phone and with us without asking you what you make of the last couple weeks, whether it's Rosenstein, Kavanaugh, just the politics of the moment. Only about 30 seconds left. But what's your take of what we've seen over the past few days? Well, it's it's it's, 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 it's the tweet length answer is it's been bad for Republicans and it looks to be getting worse. Um, you know, the, the problems with Kavanaugh and the charges have driven away suburban women. Whether that extends to rural districts like Maine 2nd, which I wrote about, I think remains to be seen. But unless things turned around uh, in a very sudden way in the next week or two, it, it looks like Republicans are going to have a difficult election day. Great stuff. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, of course, author of The Devil's Bargain, uh, the must yeah. read for understanding the politics of the moment. And just a reminder, everybody, Josh's story featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. It's out this Friday. You can also read it now on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. We are very excited to have this gentleman back with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. He is Randy Watts, Executive Vice, Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist 
at William O'Neill and Company. And Carol, I love it when it all kind of comes together. Uh, We heard just a few minutes ago from our own Josh Green, who had been doing some reporting up in Maine about a very close race there for the House. These are the most watched midterm elections that I can remember. Right. And Randy, you've done some in-depth work on this to try and understand it from a market's perspective. I love all this research that you've put together. Distill it for us. What should we be thinking about as we head toward November? I guess the first point is it's been a very unusual year in the markets. The markets haven't followed their normal seasonal and historical patterns. Normally, going into a midterm election, the market is actually weak in Q2 and Q3. This year, it's been strong. Obviously, the market this quarter on the S&P is up about 7%. Normally, it's down 1%. Normally, what happens in, in, a, in a midterm election year is the market has some kind of a pullback or a correction in Q2 and Q3, and then really has a strong Q4. Historically, after the, the midterms, the market's up more like 7% after the election. We're not following that pattern which is interesting. Uh, And so there's a question of how this is going to play out as we move into the fall. So important because we've had a bunch of different individuals come on and say, hey, it's a midterm election year. We often see the markets do well in midterms. But you're saying this, in terms of what we're seeing leading up to it, it's not been the pattern we've seen before. Right. Normally it's weak. Maybe it plays out differently. Normally it's weak before and then strong after. Uh, It's also interesting that this is occurring against a backdrop of of a pretty, you know, decent-sized wall of worry for investors you know, the, 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 the trade war, uh, the Fed tightening, obviously we have the Fed decision tomorrow, uh, the emerging market crisis in terms of currency and their stock markets, the midterms like we met, mentioned, and obviously the ongoing political climate with the Mueller investigation, et cetera. That wall of worry, though, hasn't seemed to be any sort of overhang, to mix my metaphors sort of tragically here, um, for investors, though. They have tended to ignore it, as your data, it it sounds like, shows. Yeah, and I think the reason is because the U.S. economy has been so strong, right? If you look at the most recent economic numbers, wage growth up 2.9%, GDP up 4%, industrial production up 4%, retail sales up 6%. You know, the economy has been very strong, and it's been a strong profit cycle, and I think that's allowed investors to kind of tune out some of this noise and really focus on earnings. So what does it mean for the Fed? What are they going to be tuning into in terms of figuring out maybe their trajectory? I mean, I'm curious how that kind of factors into your thinking. So, you know, we think it's, you know, almost a done deal that the Fed's going to raise tomorrow tomorrow at at two o'clock. And we think the another rate increase in December is likely. I think the jury's still out on what happens as we move through next year. But I think clearly the market is pricing in these next two kind of increases. Are there, let me just, because Kathleen Hayes and uh, Carl Riccadonna are from our economics teams here, uh, kind of talked a lot about maybe the potential for the Fed doing, overdoing it, like we've seen in past Feds. Um, do you think there's a little worry about that? I, I think there, you know, there is a risk. I mean, right now the yield curve, I think, is maybe 26, 27 basis points in terms Pretty of the narrow. two to 10 year spread. Though, yes, though, interestingly, in our work, uh, when, the, when the curve is at this kind of steepness, it actually stock returns are very, very strong. You don't really get into problems with U.S. equities until the curve actually inverts. What's strange is that this kind of 
you'd call it a, a sort of a flat curve. Mm -hmm. At this level of steepness, it's actually still very good for equities. You don't really get in trouble until the curve inverts by 25 basis points or more. Huh, okay. So talk to us about volatility. Every sure. day when the market closes, you know, we check on the VIX, we go back and forth, like it's up a little bit, it's down a little bit. It, I, I'm gonna confess, it's not the most exciting thing we do every day. Because it moves around so much. Well, it moves around, but not in huge swings. No. We haven't seen it, um, you know, we, we certainly haven't seen an increased amount of volatility. You got to go back months and months to the beginning of the year when people are like, oh boy, we're in for more volatility. And guess what? We weren't. So what do you see between now and November? So we would think it's unusual to not have some kind of a, a pause here or a little bit of a pullback in front of the election. Uh, again, uh, the market hasn't been following historical patterns, yeah. but we should mention uh, two things. One, let, this has been the, the second strongest first term returns for a president since FDR. So out of the last 15 presidencies, this is the second best in terms of stock returns. The second point I'd like to make is out of the last 12 midterms, something changed in terms of the uh, representation of, the, uh, of, the, of Congress in 10 out of the last 12. So normally you do, you do get a change. Normally that uncertainty causes the market to pull back a little bit. We're, we're not doing that now. And so you do sort of wonder, are you getting that year-end rally early this year right. or will it still play out after the election? Well, because you sort of wonder whether there isn't a lot of uncertainty about, I mean, if yeah. you believe the polls, which, you know, you can or can't. Um, fool me once, fool me twice. You know, exactly. Polls have really but if you believe the, if you believe the polls a swing at least in the house mm -hmm. feels fairly certain at this point and, to, to most watchers. And what's funny is that actually returns in the market are better statistically when you have mixed government than when you have one party in all three, uh, both the presidency and the Senate and the house. Uh, the, again, the first two years of the Trump administration is kind of gone against that historical pattern. I think the S&P is up something like 45% since the Republicans took all three, uh, uh, both the presidency and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the two chambers. But normally the market actually likes a little bit of a mixed split government. So I'm optimistic if that does occur, maybe that still means that there's, there's better returns or continuing good returns as we move well, forward. Well, you get checks and balances, right? And nobody can do too much. Nothing can be exaggerated in terms of policy or moves because everybody's kind of keeping each other in balance. Exactly. And I think with the economy strong, the market might be okay with that if we just kind of go status quo for a while, given how strongly we're going. So based on what you're saying, you seem pretty upbeat. I think it's it's tough to get too negative as long as the corporate profit cycle stays strong. You know, we think corporate profits next year can still grow roughly double digit. Uh, I think the market's using our, our estimates estimates are about 100, $178 for next year. That would put the the market, the S&P right now at about 16 and change. Is there something different? I got to get this in. Is there something different in terms of market cycles? Because we've talked about, Jason, with our Business Week uh, reporters about because of social media and stuff, stuff works its way through the financial markets much more quickly than it yeah. used to. Has that impacted maybe durations of market cycles? Got about 30 seconds. I think what's happened is people underestimated the strength of the economy. Earnings results have been much, much better than expected. As long as that continues, the market can keep going up. I think when earnings start disappointing, we're going to run into trouble. So you said no to social media. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of wild. We keep thinking that's it. And it keeps going. Um, love that stuff. I love this research. And I'm, I'm, I always learn something when you walk in. 
eager to dig even further into uh, this yeah. deck that you have created uh, for your customers and your clients. Randy Watts, Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist for William O'Neill and Company. A great background you have managing long, short hedge funds. You're a UVA guy. Really love the perspective you bring to this and eager to see how it all plays out. It's over the, the UVA next thing, months. Randy, that really makes Jason it. just sing when oh, it comes to you. <laughs> this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.